You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lal and I'm joined by Whitney Johnson. Whitney is actually recognized as one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world today. She's an expert on disruptive innovation and personal disruption, as outlined in a number of her books, including her latest, which is called uh, Build an A-Team and Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve. She spent nearly a decade as an institutional investor, ranked uh, equity analyst on Wall Street. In addition to her work as a speaker and advisor, Whitney's a coach uh, for Harvard Business School's Executive Education Program. Really looking forward to this conversation, Whitney. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Raj. So let's start at the very top, uh, because I'm sure a lot of my listeners uh, are, won't really understand the concept beforehand, so I think you can explain is what is personal disruption? <laughs> That's a great question. I think probably we need to back up a little bit and just talk about what is disruption. So I'll try to explain that really quickly, because there's a lot of different ideas about what that is. So the idea of disruptive innovation at its simplest and having worked with Clayton Christensen is that it's a silly little thing that can take over the world. Like the, you know, the telephone did the telegraph, the automobile did the horse and buggy. More recently, we've seen Toyota disrupt General Motors, Netflix Blockbuster and Uber, the yellow cabs or, or cabs. Well, personal disruption is how you take all of these ideas and make them meaningful to you. What does it look like? You start at the bottom of a ladder, you climb to the top, and then you jump to the bottom of a new ladder. So personal disruption as opposed to actual disruption or disruptive innovation, um, in this instance, the the um, upstart is you and the incumbent is you. And so when you disrupt yourself, you're disrupting the current version of you and trying something new. How do, Actually, uh, further to that, uh, adapting to change is, is part of this in terms of disruption. One of the things that I've found, I'm curious as, as to your perspective on this, um, growing up for myself, I'm, we moved around a lot uh, to different neighborhoods and because my dad invested in a lot of real estate and flipped properties and then we would move to another neighborhood. And it was great for me because uh, it forced, forced me to adapt to new surroundings, but it was also a lot easier for me as a male because I found that I could just go crash in with a bunch of the other kids that are boys and play sports. My sister actually had a hard time um, with it uh, in terms of adapting and having so many moves and I, let's call it disruption uh, in her life. Do you find that that you know disruption is an interesting concept, but do you find that to be a different challenge for males versus females? Mm, such a great question. Um, the answer is yes and no. I think what's interesting about, um, if you think about disruption or disruptive innovation at a very high level, it is a framework for managing change. You know, how do you know when it's, you know, you get to the top of some type of learning curve and it's time to do something new and my framework of personal disruption is a seven-point framework for, for managing that successfully. I do think there are certain aspects of it um, that are easier for women, and there are certain aspects that are easier for men. Um, for example, for uh, women, women tend to actually get pretty good at figuring out how to play where no one else is playing in a way that men do not. And you just actually illustrated really nicely how you were able to move to a new neighborhood. You immediately had this network of, you know, let's go play sports together. We've got a job. We've got a task. We'll be friends. Um, and for women, it's a little bit more difficult because, you know, you can't necessarily plug into that network easily. And because women tend to be more relationship oriented and there's not necessarily a task, how do you find 
find a way to develop that relationship immediately. So there are some aspects of change that are um, easier for women, um, and there are some aspects that are easier for men. Hmm. So you're a uh, Wall Street veteran. Uh, yep. Can you can you give us a little bit of background on how you actually apply personal disruption to your life, and and what what have been your biggest challenges? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Uh, so when I first moved to New York, I had graduated from college in, with a degree in music, and my husband and I moved to New York. He was getting his Ph.D. at Columbia, and, uh, you know, someone needed to put food on the table. I was the designated person and wanted to – I didn't know what Wall Street was. I had grown up on the West Coast. It wasn't a thing. This was pre-Silicon Valley, and um, wanted to get a job, and – basically started as a secretary. I mean, you know, think about the film Working Girl, that was me, big hair and all. And so um, so I started as a secretary and eventually was like, oh, wow, this Wall Street thing, this is pretty cool. Like, we're talking liars poker era. It was very, very exciting. Um, and so eventually I had a boss who believed in me and I was able to move from being a secretary to an investment banker. And for anybody in financial services, which I suspect are most of the people that are listening, you know that does not happen. And yeah. so this is the first time we should think about disruption where only in movies exactly yeah. well this is a yeah. great example of i had i couldn't walk in the front door which is what you would do normally when you're you know taking on competitive risk i had to walk through a side door and i had to i walked in as a secretary got my got my foothold as a silly little thing and then was able to up and not the world but certainly my world so that's the first example of being a low end disruptor um about Eight, no, not eight, five years later, um, I was now investment banking and our bank was acquired. There's a big shakeup. My boss gets fired and I am moved, but actually I'm shoved into equity research because, again, if you know Wall Street, you don't go from banking to equity research. It's considered a step down. So in this particular instance, um, I did not disrupt myself. I was disrupted. I was moved into equity research. But what was interesting about this is this step back um, allowed me, it was a slingshot forward. So, um, and again, silly little thing. It turned out I was really good as an equity analyst. I ended up becoming institutional investor ranked for eight years. And so that step back was a slingshot for me. Even though I was pushed or disrupted, it was a huge opportunity. Fast forward 10 years, um, I'm now, I, I ranked for you know, eight years straight, and I'm at the top of a learning curve, and I decide this time that I have gone to management and said, you know, I really want to try, you know, try management, and they're like, no, nah, we like you right where you are, and so I realized that if I was going to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish in this instance, I was going to have to disrupt myself, so on top of the game, I'm ranked in two different categories, number one and one, number two and another, um, making a lot of money, and I quit. I just quit. And so that was a, a personal disruption of I'm going to go figure out how to become an entrepreneur. And then the last instance I would say is, you know, five years ago, I'm working with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, sell my stake in in the fund and um, move off to basically say, okay, this whole framework of disruption that we're using, this is really interesting, but I think it actually also applies to people. I want to really chase this down, write a book about it. And so I have moved from being an investor to what I hope will be a thought leader and a person who's really talking about personal disruption and how do you apply these ideas to your business so that if you will disrupt yourself, you as an organization or a company can be disruptive. 
So um, let's back up for a second there because I, I, I think it's important for everybody to know what is uh, the Disruptive Innovation Fund that you actually co-founded with uh, Harvard Business School's uh, Yeah, so um, back in 2005, 2006, you know, he, his book had come out in 1996, so it had been about 10 years, and a lot of people were like, wow, you know, this idea is really interesting, and so on a number of occasions, people would say, well, how would you apply this to investing? And he would say, well, why don't you go, you know, long Netflix short blockbuster, for example, and people would make money. And so he thought, you know, I'd really like to apply this and I'd like to invest and set up a fund doing this, but I have no background in investing. And at the time, his son, who he wanted to do it with, was just graduating from business school. And so I had this background um, on Wall Street, and so I co-founded the fund with him. What we did was pretty interesting in that we did a, a hybrid or a barbell approach of both publicly traded securities where you had some sense of, you know, they were disruptive, but and they, the execution risk was gone um, gone to some extent, so it wasn't much upside. But then we also did early-stage companies. And this, this theory or framework, in my opinion, was more suited to that. And so we had invested in a company called Coupang, which is kind of the Amazon of Korea, and were the very first investors in. And today, um, at last valuation round, was worth about um, $5 billion. So, Great. Um, yeah, so 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 yeah, so you sold your did, state, but does the fund still exist today or no? Yes, it does. So his son okay. runs it now. Yeah, okay. his son runs it now. Mm-hmm. And were you doing were you doing things like pair trades with within that fund? You yeah, we did. We were, it was it was a long short it was a it was a long short fund, yeah. Got it. Got it. That's great. So, yeah. Uh, so innovation I guess is, you know, it, I think most people agree that it's kind of a key driver for economic growth. Um, what challenges do companies face right now uh, trying to stay on top of uh, innovative trends in your mind? Yeah, it's such a great question. So one of the things I, I've thought a lot about and, and really the, the premise of my work is that it's not the companies that disrupt, it's the people who do. And so one of the things I think happens with an organization or a team is that You know, you get people in place and they're doing a really good job and then um, they start to get to the top of of a learning curve and and um, and they become incumbents in terms of their own knowledge. And so uh, once they become incumbents, then they start to get bored. Um, They don't mean to get bored, but they do because our brains are wired to learn and change and develop and grow. And once you get to the top of a learning curve, you start to dial it in because you're not getting that dopamine hit, basically the drug hit of of learning. And so what happens with companies is is they, they end up facing the innovator's dilemma, whether you innovate or not, there's risk. But with people, and so one of the things that I think is a problem, but also it can be solved, is if you look at an organization at any given time, you want to have about 70% of your people in kind of the sweet spot of their learning. They know enough, but not too much at the low end of learning where they don't know very much, and so they're slow, but they ask lots of questions like, why do we do it like this? And you only want to have about 15% of your people who are at the high end of the curve, who are the experts, the masters, and we tend to want to hire all masters, but those experts or masters are the people who are getting bored and complacent. So I think one of the reasons people struggle to stay on top of innovative trends is they have too many people in their organizations at the high end of that curve. And if they would take some of those people who are smart 
and capable and require them to do things that put them back down at the low end of the curve where they don't know what they're doing, you would find that a lot of the the innovation issues would take care of themselves because in that trying to figure out a place for themselves to play, they would, by definition, find a place for their company to play. Right. So what advice, you obviously do a lot of speaking uh, out there and a lot of coaching, executive coaching. What are some of the, the key tips that you, you would provide some of the C, C-suite execs uh, that are you know, considering, I guess, change in their business and or uh, in their personal lives? Yeah. Um, the first thing I would say is that when you get to um, th- when you get to the top of a learning curve or the top of an S curve, um, oftentimes you know you need to make a change and you don't do it. And so um, I would say that would be the first piece of advice is when you've got this feeling in your gut of like I'm a little bit bored or I'm dialing it in and you feel like you need to move but you don't, you need to do it because um, if you you know, it's, if you stay a day too long as a CEO, then that's really bad. It's so much better to leave earlier. Um, mm-hmm. So if you know you need to do, do it. Secondly is if you don't want to do it but you know you need to, one of the ways that you can motivate yourself because is to is to tell yourself all the bad things that are going to happen to you if you don't make a change. You know this is the business that you're in is that we're far, you know, behavioral um, economics would suggest that we're more motivated by what we'll lose than by what we'll gain. And so if you think about it, if I make a change, here are the wonderful things that are going to happen to me. You're not going to be motivated by that. But you will be motivated by if I don't make a change, I'm going to get kicked out and it's going to be awful and my name's going to be in the press. Then it's a lot easier to get yourself to actually make that change. Um, And then the third suggestion I would say is if you think about this idea of disruption, disruption is a willingness to play where no one else is playing. That's what disruption looks like. It's, it's, It's taking on market risk. And so as you're thinking about making a change, you're, um, you're trying to figure out a yet-to-be-defined market, and it's also true for you. And so if at any point you're feeling scared and or you're feeling lonely, then you're probably on the right path. Um, it's, it's not going to feel super easy or super comfortable. And so you can take comfort in knowing that, that scared and lonely is actually um, the right way to go in terms of you personally making a change. Let's, um, can we talk about, uh, I guess, more on the, on the personal side as well, not just corporate, but um, what advice do you give to uh, parents who are, trying to, uh, who are trying to embrace disruption within their, uh, within their life, specifically with their kids? And I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, you know, I think we all end up in this pattern in life where we try to make our kids' life a little bit easier than our life was uh, before I was telling you the story about how my parents had to migrate uh, and uh, from from India and they they moved to England, came to Canada. Uh, they did it because they wanted to create a better life for us. Uh, I've tried to uh, make sure that I create a better life for my kids. But have we gotten to the point where we're just kind of creating a life that's maybe too easy um, and not enough change and not enough disruption in it? This is a great question. Um, yeah, I think we do. I think we can yeah. create lives that are too easy for our children because we know that we know that we need to change. I mean, it's, it's there's the biology of change. It has to happen, and we know that we need to. We also know that we need the friction of a challenge. Um, in order, you know, the law of physics says that if you want to move forward, you've got to have friction. And so then the question becomes: Is what friction do our children have? Now, it doesn't have to be the same friction that your parents or your grandparents had or that we have 
um, but they do need to have friction and things that really press them. It, it's interesting because I remember, um, you know, uh, probably about 10 years ago, we had a big financial setback. And at the time, I remember it was kind of lamenting, like, oh, this is so bad for our children. We're not able to give them the opportunities that we wanted to give them. And yet, in retrospect, it was the best possible thing that could have happened because they they saw that it was a little bit harder and they didn't just, you know, hey, whatever I want, mom and dad can give me. And, and we can't, we have, we can't, we didn't have to, we didn't have the artificial of should we give it to them or not, like we couldn't give it to them. And so I remember yeah. our daughter wanted to take a trip. She had to earn her own money. She had to bake bread for all our neighbors to be able to go on that trip. And so I think that was really valuable. But but to the point, but to your point, and I think, you know, if a family is very well off financially, you can still create friction for your children by, for example, they're trying to get something done or they're in a pickle with an assignment for school. Don't do it for them. Let them yeah. let them have the consequences. Let them have the consequences of not getting into the best college ever. You know, this happened to our son. He didn't work that hard in college. He got into a good college, but he didn't get into a great college. But so much better for him to have to, you know, have that experience when the stakes aren't so high so that when they do get into the workforce, they they have experienced some consequences and some friction of things not being perfect. Yeah, it's inter- it's an interesting. I mean, we could talk about this for a long period of time because I've thought about this and had a lot of conversations with friends about it. You know, when I was growing up, our life, my sister and I, our life revolved around our parents. And in today's generation, it seems like uh, parents' life revolves around their children. Like when I was growing up, my parents had parties to go to. They'd bring us. Uh, and when we got sleepy, we would all go and, you know, pile into one bedroom and sleep on top of all of the coats. And then at 1 a.m., my parents would pick us up and take us home. Whereas in today's mm-hmm. world, you know, it's like, well, no, sorry, I can't stay past 7.30 because i got to get home because my kid has to go to sleep at exactly 8 o'clock because if he doesn't go to sleep at 8 o'clock, he's going to be cranky the next day. You know, examples like that are just, it, it, it's, what it tells me is that, and then, you know, even cooking food, uh, most people cook food specifically for the kids, and then whatever the other adults want, they will eat whatever the kids are having, whereas, you know, I grew up uh, be having to eat Indian food all the time, whether I wanted it uh, or not, because that's what my mom uh, cooked for my dad, so... It's it's mm-hmm. interesting because I think we are have created a bit of an environment to make it way too easy for our kids and and unfortunately we've made it so that our our lives kind of revolve around theirs instead of the other way around. That's so interesting. And yet we think about it, you know, bringing this back to this idea of personal disruption. I think that there are ways that we can make our lives a little bit less easy without kind of blowing up our lives or theirs mm-hmm. of just simple things like um, you know, you think about what you're going to cook and you want to cook what you want to cook. Or, you know, our daughter decided that she wanted to be vegan and we don't cook vegan meals. She cooks a lot of her own food. And right. so she gets to choose to do that. We support her and right. we want her to be able to do it. But it's a, a choice that she's making and she's choosing to do that. So I do think that there are ways. How old are your children? Out of My, curiosity. I, I have twin daughters and they're 10. Okay. So I think that, you know, if you, if you start to think about it, just we can as parents just be, say to ourselves, okay, I want to care about my children, but there's some things that I can just let kind of natural consequences play out and see what that looks like. And so that's disrupting ourselves a little bit and giving our children some friction that will help them be resilient. Um, mm-hmm. and, and also let them go do and play a sport that they're not very good at, right? right. Have them right. do something yeah. that they're not good at. 
Yeah. And yeah. how that experience? Well, this is a really interesting conversation. We could have probably done three or four <laughs> podcasts. I'm gonna ask you yeah. one last question. I'm gonna ask you one last yes, question. Please. Um, mm-hmm. Do you know how you're gonna disrupt yourself next? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. So I am. Um, I've got all this IP. I've been building this out. I have, you know, I've just published my third book. And one of the ways that I am going and in the process of disrupting myself is figuring out how to go from being a solopreneur to a CEO. What does that Mm. look like when Mm. you have a lot of people working for you? And um, it means that I can't do things the way I've done them. Like I can't be in my calendar, you know, in the weeds. And that makes me feel really good, right? Being in my calendar and managing and answering all the emails makes me feel good. But I can't do that if I want to scale. And so the disruption right now is me being willing to not do things the way I've done them if, in fact, I want to build a business that's, that moves beyond being a solopreneur. And, and that is a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. Well, you clearly, uh, I can clearly see that you have a real passion for what you do. Uh, which is great uh, because I, I love to see passion in other individuals in terms of what they do. I think life is too short to not enjoy uh, your work. And, um, you know, the world has enough investment bankers and probably needs more people uh, that are good coaches like yourself. So I really appreciate your time today, Whitney. I think this was great. And I uh, look forward to speaking to you again another time. Oh, thank you, Raj, for having me. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.